0: Welcome to the Forest Grove United Church of Christ podcast. Today we are fortunate to have Pastor Brendan and theologian Lori Kimberley join us for part one of this important conversation on purity culture. Pastor Brendan has been a spiritual leader in our community for many years and brings a wealth of experience and insights to this topic. Theologian Lori Kimberley is an expert in the field of sexuality and theology, and we are grateful to have her perspective on this important issue. Together, they will guide us through the complexities of purity culture and offer valuable insights on how we can move forward as a community. So let's dive into the conversation and learn more about
1: this critical topic.
0: So it's my pleasure to welcome and introduce Lori Kimmerly. Lori is a feminist theologian. And a brilliant mind, someone who came out of an evan back, evangelical background, has been through a deconstruction process herself, and now is a spiritual counselor for people trying to connect with a spirituality that celebrates and honors the erotic, as well as the divine feminine. And she spends much of her time setting the record straight on what a liberatory faith and spirituality could be and could look like. And so she helps us arrive at that understanding, having survived uh, and come through a very uh, oppressive, narrow-minded context. So welcome, Lori. It's great to be here, Brendan. Thank you for having me. I, you know... This is the Forest Grove United Church of Christ podcast. The United Church of Christ is a a liberal mainline Protestant denomination. I think many of our congregation members who grew up UCC or or who have only been part of mainline Protestant traditions might not be aware of what purity culture is. Many people coming to our church from evangelical backgrounds are aware of what purity culture is. For those of us who don't know, I'd I'd appreciate your clarifying for us. What is purity culture?
2: Well, on the surface, purity culture is just this idea that you're supposed to wait until marriage to have sex. And I think on the surface, that doesn't seem that harmful. But what it really is, it's about shaming sex and sexuality outside of marriage and then having this really intense elevation of sex and sexuality within marriage, also married with some very patriarchal understandings of what marriage is in terms of wifely submission, um, husband as the leader of the home, a lot of those things like that. But it is, it is really about like removing your sexual self from yourself, until you are married, and then this idea that once you're married, you can suddenly have a a sexual experience. And a lot of people grow up with this idea that are growing up in purity culture with this idea that as long as I wait until marriage, then I will have a perfect and happy marriage. I will have great sex in the bedroom, and everything will be magical. I just need to wait until marriage. That creates not only sets them up for a lot of problems within their marriage, anyone who's married, I'm sure would giggle at the idea that it's just that simple. Also, it sets a lot of younger people up for this really problematic and dangerous relationship with sex and their bodies. And so purity culture is is a theology that really harms the relationship between sex. I know we're going to talk more about its harms. The only other thing I wanted to say is it's often coupled with a vow for purity that's either made to person's parents. Oftentimes you have girls making vows to their father that they're going to wait until marriage. Sometimes you have sons making vows to their mothers that they're going to wait until marriage, but it has a lot of emphasis on like making a promise to your parents or to God.
1: That What's you're gonna the hold logic on to logic virginity.
2: Of making the vow. Yeah. Of a, of a young girl
0: making a vow to her father and, or a young man making a vow to his mother. That seems Oedipal and bizarre to me.
2: <laughs> um, it is a little bizarre. I think, in the best, like if we're looking at it with the best intentions, it's this idea that your parents are going to encourage you and support your decision to wait until marriage. I think, though, that oftentimes these vows are made when people are, you know, maybe 13, 12 or 13. They don't really understand exactly what they're promising, they don't even really understand what their sexuality is. And I think it, it um, oftentimes it really has a very controlling energy to it, where people feel like like their parents are requiring this commitment or vow to them, and it's not really made of their own free will, but even their own full understanding of what they're promising.
0: How does how does purity culture specifically? How would you say purity culture specifically impacts women?
2: It particularly impacts women because. It set is set up in such a heavy patriarchal structure. So we already live in within patriarchy with this idea that women's bodies exist for men. This is already exists within our society, within our culture. You already have girls growing up with images of women being hypersexualized within society, and having this idea that there we're sexual beings first. We need to look a, a certain way first, and then we're whatever else second uh, a student a, or a job in our position whatever it is we're, we're that second so you already have that structure within patriarchy in the world already but then it's reinforcing this especially at a young age when she's developing sexually that that your attraction to boys particularly when we're talking about girls who are straight your attraction to boys is dangerous because it can lead to them, wanting to have sex with you, and you are vulnerable, and they're very aware that they're already vulnerable because of patriarchy, but it's reinforcing this idea that your body isn't yours, it belongs to your future husband, it belongs to God. And it really creates, I think, what we're seeing as adults who grew up with purity culture, because that's the other thing, purity culture became really popular in the 80s and 90s. So now we kind of have this first wave of adults dealing with what they grew up with and i think what we've seen for a lot of women is a disassociation with their body having difficulty being present in the bedroom when they in the bed again and this is like that's the best case scenario that they just get married they start having sex with their husband that they waited for and they just disassociate in the bedroom
1: mm-hmm. whereas in
2: the worst case scenario they're accepting abuse and thinking that abuse is okay, because their body isn't theirs. Girls who grow to be women who don't follow purity culture and decide to rebel against it sometimes will not still carry that idea that their body isn't theirs. So they might not really understand or participate in safe sex, they might still be confused about what consent really is. And that can still lead to even outside of marriage, some really heavy problematic experiences in their dating life and in their relationship with their body.
1: As a woman raised in the purity culture of the 1980s and 1990s I found myself impacted and harmed in numerous ways. I entered into dating as a teenager with my purity pledge card laminated and tucked into my wallet but with no real idea about what sex was other than that it was bad and that I wanted to do it and that God and my parents would be very, very mad if I did. I understood that my body was a bad sinful thing and a temptation and a stumbling block, and that I belong to God, and someday to my husband. So I had to treat my body like a temple. When I got married, through no fault of my husband, I felt like property. And it's taken years of therapy and work to feel like my body belongs to me. Even now, I don't wear shorts or low-cut shirts, and I worry about being too visible or too friendly. There's always more healing to do, but I'm getting there and I'm raising my children to know that their bodies belong to them and only them. Breaking that cycle is really important to me.
0: How would you say purity culture impacts men?
2: I think that's a really important question because I think we don't often discuss that. But I think what purity culture does for men is it creates, I think I, th- I, s- I noticed a split for men. So I don't predominantly work with men, but I did actually interview a bunch of people about their experience in purity culture. And the most common thing that I expected from men was them to talk about how they had to get over the patriarchy that was reinforced for them, that they own their wife's body or that they own a woman's body. It's hers. It's not hers, it's theirs. But what I actually discovered was that men started associating their arousal with sin. So they would be, you know, imagine like an 11 year old, 12 year old boy who is just starting to develop sexually and he finds himself attracted to a girl that he's hanging out with at youth group and he's associating that with bad, being bad and being wrong. So what what has been discovered or what's kind of happening is there are couples that are getting married waiting until marriage and like he's not able to get an erection because he loves his wife and he thinks that if he's aroused by her he's he's sinning and so he's associated it so heavily with sin that he can't actually allow himself to be aroused Mm -hmm. um a lot of guilt around being sexually aroused a lot of guilt around being attracted to women and not really understanding that attraction to a woman doesn't send her to hell even if they intellectually know that it's difficult, it it lives in your body. It's, it's a, it's a theology associated with the body. So it's a, an idea associated with the body. So there's a, this idea that they're wrong for that. So that's on, I think, again, like I keep saying like on at best, because I think that those men tend to be the ones who are like, okay, there's a problem and I need to work and solve this problem. We find that these men tend to be the ones who go to therapy. They tend to really want to work on having healthier relationships Then the other side of it is men who have this idea that's a patriarchy already existing in our culture, right? That comes back again with this idea that, oh, my wife is mine. I own her body. So she needs to listen to me. She needs to obey me. Um, When I want sex, I get sex. And this is not fair to men either because that's just not reality. And so it's setting them up for failure in their marriages. It's setting them up for failure in their relationships with women. And it's It's really harming their understanding of how they relate to the opposite sex. And I think just like patriarchy is harming everyone, I think of purity culture is patriarchy on crack. So it's just harming to this higher degree.
0: I can't help but consider how purity culture impacted me as a gay person, as a member of the LGBTQ community, even though I didn't grow up in a religious context that preached or promulgated purity culture. I think it seeps into the dominant culture. Right. Right. It does. Whereas even for instance, my husband at the time, or my former husband at the time, my partner, before we were married, we were living together for years. We were in a loving, committed partnership. And uh, I don't even think gay marriage was even a legal. No, it was not. Gay marriage was not even a legal possibility mm. when I was living with my partner at the time. And we were in a loving, committed partnership. There were people who said, oh, people will have a problem if that you're living together and you're not married. Uh uh-huh. hmm and- there's no interrogation or inquiry into what marriage really is the social construction of marriage what a sp- mm. what a spiritual marriage is like for mm. for me personally and i'm not even saying that what it means to me is what it should mean to to everybody and i say that because you know, I'm a pastor, and sometimes people think when pastors speak, they, they are saying that everybody should believe what they are saying. But <laughs> this is, which I think is, you know, the patriarchy that you're talking about, that we kind of need to heal from uh, collectively. F- for me, though, spiritual marriage is the union of, you know, in Christian tradition, during the season of Easter, we're talking a lot about Christ as the union of spirit and matter, Christ as uh, divine love incarnate in a body. And so yeah. Uh, yeah. marriage with regards to intimate relations is when divine love is united with our uh, fulfillment of consensual sexual partnership, when those things are are blended. Uh, Mm -hmm. The idea being that uh, sex, when that kind of love is present, and it goes beyond sort of just uh, objectification, but Mm -hmm. functions as a subject-subject way of relating. That is what I would call spiritual marriage. That can can take many forms. It certainly has... uh, for a very long time in what in modern times we would call LGBTQ relationships, there has been that kind of spiritual marriage for a long time in LGBTQ relationships, without a right. doubt. Because people people love each other and they combine love and the erotic. And I think that is actually a more deep and profound. Meaning when we talk about spiritual marriage, and you could go into detail about how, you know, when Jesus talked about humanity and Jerusalem being like a bridegroom, uh, wait, pr- a bride waiting for their their groom. You know, uh, so the you know right. the love of God coming and being among Jerusalem. This is it's speaking about something more profound, I think, than the modern social construction of. Of marriage, uh, you know, and the definition right. of marriage uh, changes throughout time in different places, and so this is, I guess, I I ask all that because I wanted to bring the theological uh, into this conversation because I know you have a, have studied this very topic a lot, and I'm sure have a lot more to say about it than I do, and. I also wanted to ask you how you think purity culture impacts LGBTQ people. I I said a little bit about it, but I wanted to hear what you had to say.
2: Sure. I I think it does. I think one of the interesting things about purity culture is in a theological sense, I think it sounds kind of beautiful. Like even a lot of the things that you just said, I think a lot of people who hold to purity culture would be all about it. They would say, of course, it's not the state that, uh, that has, a, has you being married. It's the commitment between two people that is that that's what marriage is. I don't think that all evangelicals have fully worked out that they don't necessarily need a wedding ceremony for that commitment, but they desperately want there to be this un- union of, of two people together, soul and body, before they engage in sexuality or sexual activity. So I think that there's a theology that we can uncover from it that doesn't necessarily isn't horrific, but it what it leads into, I think, are practices and structures that can be really problematic. And I know that there's a couple other questions where I'll talk about the problems with the theology connected to it. But I think it, al- it like really, really harms LGBTQ folk. I would say youth, but it also harms them in their adulthood as well, um, because their sexuality doesn't even exist. So if boys and girls need to just shut off their sexuality, it doesn't even create space for LGBTQ kids to have a sexuality. So now imagine a 12-year-old, 11-year-old budding sexuality, and they realize that they're not attracted to the opposite sex. They're attracted to the same sex. And now they're Certainly hearing that, that their sexuality is a sin and that it's wrong and that it's evil, but it's never going to be okay. And on top of that, I think they're being put in uh, a camp. They're being put in all girls' cabins, if it's a girl attracted to a girl. She's putting put in all girl cabins where she needs to completely shut off her sexuality because she's in a room with a bunch of girls that she's one or two of them she might be attracted to um, or might have a crush on one of them. For boys, same thing. There is this, there's this idea that their sexuality is not just evil until they're married. It's evil, period. And the culture is not creating a space for that to be even addressed. Um, there's no support for that. And there's obviously definitely no discussion. Now, I obviously don't think that their sexuality in any way is wrong. I think it's beautiful, but it's but when we're setting children up to say your sexuality is evil and we're going to pretend it doesn't exist and you need to pretend it doesn't exist either. And we're not going to do anything to make it easier for you, but we're going to do everything to make it easier for the straight kids. That's also, I think a double whammy of oppression onto these kids who need, are literally left to deal with and understand their sexuality completely on their own. What that leads to, I think is again, unhealthy relationship with sex and sexuality um experiencing their sex and sexuality under really dangerous circumstances maybe not with the safest people often having to do it in secret i think for for straight kids they they might be i'm putting in quotes for those who can't see like messing up with their boyfriend or girlfriend but their parents know they're dating them and so their parents know who they're dating they know uh that maybe it's a it's a a kid from church or a kid from school that they're There's a lot of safety set up around that with adults being aware of the relationship. For LGBTQ kids raised in purity culture, their relationships need to be top secret. And so if they do want to explore their sexuality, it's even more space for there to be danger in it.
1: Being raised in a purity culture mindset gave me inhibitions that last to this day. Ignoring and suppressing an entire facet of my humanity during my formative years contributed to the anxiety and depression I struggle with to this day. Not only did I feel this anxiety for myself, but I also felt responsible for the thoughts of the boys around me and the judgment of adults I emulated and looked up to.
0: So we're going to throw out a churchy word, Lori, heresy, Mm -hmm. heresy. I love it. You know, I think of, uh, you know, I could say it in my Monty Python voice, heresy. (laughs) In in church, in church history, what is heresy for those, for those who might be listening? What does the churchy term heresy mean?
2: Well, that's a really hard word to define because it really just it. I mean, officially, it just means any teaching that goes against God. But then that cracks open the whole door of, you know, Protestants or heretics, uh, according to the Catholic Church. Uh, heresy is anything that somebody doesn't like that they can say that doesn't line up with God. Mm-hmm. But there is a traditional school of thought in the early church where there were writers that explored what a heresy was. And this term really came out of this idea. I'm not going to go into early church history too much, but this idea that they had to figure out what, like, the real true um, belief of Christians were. This is where we got the Nicene Creed. And around that time, people were writing about what a heresy is. And they were referring to certain sects of Christians as heretics because they didn't line up with essentially essentially the Nicene Creed and what eventually became the Nicene Creed. So that I think in a traditional sense, a heresy is relates to those movements in the early church that didn't get the stamp of approval by the institution that was formed in the late 300s.
0: Thank you for that brilliant answer. I'm, (laughs) I'm being cheeky and playful and in in asking and wondering based on the definition of heresy being something that goes against God, Mm -hmm. how might we in this podcast have the audacity to say (laughs) how purity culture goes against God? How is purity culture a heresy?
2: Well, I think it's actually an old school heresy. I actually don't even think we need to say it's against God. I mean, it is against God. I do think it's against God in a very modern, my theology type of way. But I think when we look at even the old school heresies, and when I say the old school, I mean the ones that were being discussed in the 300s. There's something really essential within all those heresies about us being not a body with a soul and that our soul is holy and that our body is sinful, but that we are, our body and soul are one and that that is completely holy. And it was this idea, and there's scathing reviews of movements that denied the body, and a lot of really really being very clear that that is not what Christianity is supposed to be about, that the body is holy, that our holiness of our body is tied into what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a follower of Christ is honoring the body. And so,
0: and honoring, and honoring the body includes the exploration of consensual pleasure between consenting adults.
2: Well, I'm not arguing that the early church fathers would have said that sex outside of marriage is okay. They certainly would not have been okay with that. And I don't want to give a false understanding of history but when we go into our modern understanding of how purity culture understands sex and sexuality, they are very much saying that your body is evil. Your body is sinful. Your body cannot be trusted. You're, you need to protect your soul by protecting your body. And your body is only holy if you keep it pure. And the way you keep it pure is by not having sex the, the resurrection or faith in the resurrection is not going to redeem your body. You need to redeem your body by following these rules. And that is an old school heresy. That's a heresy that goes against the Nicene Creed in the modern context of it. I think as somebody who does believe our bodies are holy, I, that's where I think what you're saying is sex between two consenting adults can be a beautiful sacred experience when we realize that our bodies are our souls when our bodies are intertwined with our divinity and it ties so much into this idea of consensually saying to someone this is my body like here is the gift of my soul and a lot and two people engaging in an understanding that they are not just touching someone's body but they're touching their soul leads so deeply into beautiful consensual sex and i'm not just saying in a committed relationship I think that that beautiful moment can happen as a you know an encounter with two people consenting one night, or it can lead to it being forever or anywhere in between. It's about, it's about the understanding that you're engaging with someone's soul that I think leads to the redemption of our sex and
1: sexuality. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and leave your comments below. You can
0: find Forest Grove United Church of Christ on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can email us
1: at podcast at fgucc.org. We'd love to hear from you. Have a blessed day.